$28.8 billion, the cumulative four-year budget gap facing New York State between fiscal years 2020 and 2023. The recently released mid-year update to the state budget revealed a huge structural imbalance in the state's financial plan, largely caused by a previously unrecognized gap in the Medicaid budget that the state has covered by delaying payment into the following fiscal year. These kinds of cash games were a common practice in the state budget in the bad old days to make the books look balanced, and the fact that the state has resorted to this gimmickry while the state continues to benefit from an economic expansion is troubling. CBC President Andrew Ryan joins the podcast to discuss and to explain what the state should do to get its fiscal house in order. And, because it's the holidays, we've got two additional interviews with CBC staff on two timeless topics, property tax reform and economic development spending. What's the Data Point Holiday Edition? Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. As Maria just said, we've got a jam-packed episode for you today. Three different interviews with CBC experts. Each one will be just about 10 minutes, so we're still keeping to our usual time for the podcast, which well, can range anywhere from 25 to 55 minutes, but um, we tried it for around 30 or so. Um, and so we've got three great experts and topics to get into today related to the state budget, economic development spending, and property tax reform, all very important topics that will be dealt with both the end of this year and into next. So thank you for joining us here today. And let's get right to the first of our three discussions with Andrew Ryan. Hey, Happy holidays. How Nothing says holidays like budget <laughs> gaps and, and property hey, tax reform. Don't spend too much around the holidays or yes, any other time. Everybody's keeping a budget these before days. Before your, your budget gap explodes. Um, okay, so CBC, um, obviously, like, like lots of others, has taken notice of this real problem in the state budget that's really grown. But, of course, CBC has taken it much more seriously and looked at it much more closely um, so you have a new letter to legislative leaders and the governor just out. What's the gist? Well, it's good that the legislative leaders and the governor take also take this seriously. That's the good part. The bad part is this is a huge budget problem, almost $7 billion next year, almost $29 billion over over four years. As Maria said, $12.5 billion of that because the state hadn't budgeted for the full cost of Medicaid. So this is a significant problem. We wrote a letter to urge our state's leaders to recognize that we are in a period of economic growth. These are the good times, and the good times are when you put your fiscal house in order. So we wanted to reemphasize that solving this problem should be on the spending side of the budget. Control spending, because that way it improves New York's competitiveness and prepares this state to better weather the next recession. So, you know, the governor is on the record saying this is going to be dealt with, obviously, in his budget proposal, which will be due out in early January. Speakers on the record saying they prefer to do tax increases um, and they'd always prefer to do tax increases before going for spending cuts because the spending cuts are harmful to services. What is wrong with that logic? There are three problems with the logic. First, this, it's important to realize that this is a spending side problem, not a revenue side problem. Revenues continue to chug along, you know, a little slower than they have in recent years, but they continue still to grow. It's not like we're witnessing a contraction. But spending on this other side is growing faster and faster. From 2011 to 17, it was 2% a year. From 2017 to 2020, it was 3.6% a year. From 2020 to 2023, it's expected to be 4.9% a year. We have a spending side problem. 
Second um, is that we it's a Medicaid problem that, um, as we talked about, has been unbudgeted. So spending grew eight-tenths of 1% during the governor's uh, first two terms, and now it's projected to grow 6.1% a year. So that's the problem. We also have very high taxes, and they threaten our competitiveness. We have the highest state and local tax burden in in the country, and combining that with the federal SALT cap, the cap on state and local tax deductions, we we are threatened with uh, the wealthy, frankly, moving out of the state, taking their tax dollars and their businesses with them, which will hurt us more. Right, because when we say the assembly speaker has put tax increases on the table. And actually, the Assembly Democrats have been fighting for that even before this mm-hmm. this bigger budget hole. We're really talking about them talking mostly about increasing taxes on the wealthy, right? I mean, we, we would it's still to be seen exactly what they might propose, the Assembly Democrats, and we don't know exactly where the Senate Democrats will be. But largely, they talk about that increasing taxes on the wealthy, as you just mentioned. Exactly. And frankly, raising taxes during a recovery will reduce the option during that next recession. Right now, we put on a personal income tax surcharge during the last recession. Remember that 10 years ago? We put it on almost 12 years ago. We continue to extend it, extend it, extend it, extend it. And it's around $4 billion of our budget right now is because we've increased the, we've perpetuated the temporary surcharge. Added to that, last year they enacted a real estate transfer tax enhancement. You keep doing that, suddenly the next recession, where do you have to go to solve that problem? You've really taken some of the stuff off the table. Let's work on the spending side first. Such a key point about this happening in still relatively pretty solid, good times for economic growth as opposed to during a recession where if you go to this lever during good times to fill this hole – Where's your lever when the recession hits? And that recession might reduce three years of revenues by $35 billion. And that add that to the $28 billion problem we're talking about, that's real money. So can you explain to people when you say unbudgeted Medicaid, how does someone understand that? Because they say, well, the budget passed and it's got the Medicaid costs. So what do we mean by unbudgeted Medicaid costs? So let's say, say you have bills coming in every month. Say you got a rent increase. But suddenly, you just decided it wasn't there. And you said, oh, my rent's $1,000 a month. I got $12,000 in my pocket. That's fine. Next year, I'm going to have $12,000 in my pocket. But my rent went up 100 bucks a month. Where's that next uh, $1,200? Oh, I just didn't budget for that. And suddenly, miraculously, it appears. Quite frankly, they knew about this problem a year ago. And they haven't addressed it in the last budget cycle. They really need to address it in this budget cycle. That Medicaid was going to cost more and they didn't accurately project and budget for exactly exactly you run the medicaid program as you had planned to over the four years it's going to cost 12.5 billion dollars more than you put in the budget so just to zoom back out for a second the state fiscal year april 1st right and so they were already planning for this next fiscal year a manageable but probably a little bit too big say it differently if you want from cbc's perspective uh deficit but now we're talking about something three times what they expected at $6 billion and some real questions that need to be answered. Real questions. And that even includes deferring, as you said, some of the Medicaid payments into that next fiscal year that should really be dealt with in this current one. Exactly. They actually plan as part of their sketch of a solution. They plan to defer permanently $2.2 billion of bills every year. So it's kind of like deciding if you're going to pay your December rent in January that you've saved money doesn't really work that way. 
Now, some people have heard, and it is true, that the governor has held agency uh, budgeted growth to close to flat almost every year since he's been in office, and he also claims that the budget has been growing at 2%. So what is confounding these numbers, or what is really perpetuating this unsustainable growth? Because the revenues have been decent, you know, coming in decently during um, this period of expansion, and he, the budget's been growing at this purported 2%. What's the problem here? Well, as CBC reveals each year, there are a whole bunch of, of maneuvers that um, are done to keep it looking like spending is growing 2%, but like last year when it grew 4.5%, a little over 4%. You have to add back stuff that was moved off budget maybe to the MTA or bills that were paid at different times, and Medicaid is a perfect example. Last year, at the end of the year, they took $1.7 billion and moved it three days from March 30th to April 2nd or something in, in that, and miraculously, suddenly spending was lower. It's actually not true, but they can put it that way on the books. That being said, the governor, amazing ability to execute, as does his budget director. These are two of the best in the business. When they want to control spending, I have every confidence that they can find that. This is the fiscal infrastructure of our state. And the governor is, is known for focusing on infrastructure. It's getting his house in order, which he can do probably very well. But I, so I just want to expound on that in terms of the facts for people who are not so um – into the details as we are here at CBC, um, you know, the, the city budget um, agency costs are a big driver because the city provides services. So we have the agencies that directly directly deliver services. State budget is very different. And a lot of what it does is pass through money to local governments so that they can provide the service as well. And because of that, the two biggest pieces of the state budget are Medicaid and school aid. And that is really where costs have been growing above 2% and driving the overall cost structure in the budget, particularly on school aid. Because as Andrew said, very early on, there was a lot of cost control, not only on agencies, but also in Medicaid um, and a little bit less in school aid. But that has sort of, that restraint has sort of waned in this last term of the governor's administration. Um, and on school aid in particular, that has grown far in excess of all the other items in the budget and has really been driving budget growth um, overall. For the last Certainly couple of years. until this Medicaid explosion has happened. So now it, it has overtaken mm-hmm. school aid. School aid has continued to increase. And remember, as we pointed out last year, this, the state constitution guarantees every student the right to a sound basic education. But in fact, last year, they increased school aid more than $800 million in addition to what they would have needed to provide a sound basic education in each of the districts in the state. That's the kind of area that they need to look into. All right, so let's conclude with what CBC has identified as the um, four key areas, four key considerations that the governor and his budget director and the state legislature, of course, would need to be involved here, should really look at in closing this gap. You write in your letter, as you've said, with economic expansion continuing, New York should really stabilize the budget now to be able to prepare for an actual slowdown. Um, and identify recurring savings and bring spending in line with revenue. And then, among other things, these four key areas to look at. Medicaid. It's part of the cause of the problem. It doesn't have to be the whole solution. But the governor convened a Medicaid redesign team in the beginning of his administration that did a good job at controlling costs. Reconvene that. I know they're already talking from the second floor to parts of the health system. Let's get that team back together, looking at 
selected rates, looking at long-term care where we're an outlier in the country, um, looking at its Medicaid supplemental payments. And these are payments that are made to hospitals that disproportionately care for uninsured and Medicaid patients. They can reform that program as they've talked about, focus that money on truly needy safety net hospitals and maybe save some there. Education aid, as we talked about, um, providing money to wealthy districts that actually don't need it to provide a sound basic education. As I said last year, they added $800 million above what was needed. Overall, there are wealthy districts in this state that have enough local resources and already providing enough to provide a sound basic education, yet the state still gives another $1.6 billion to those districts. We also spend $4 billion a year on economic development activities, and much of which is, is not producing results, and we can see that problem around the state. And, and frankly, the governor has, over the years, talked about savings and retiree health benefits. He should propose those again, and actually the legislature, in this case especially, should be adopting and supportive of those. Okay. Andrew Ryan, thank you for giving us a fairly brief overview of what we should be looking for and uh, what CBC is urging the governor and other folks in Albany to consider. Thank you. Happy holidays. So we just heard from CBC's president, Andrew Ryan, who was discussing options for putting the state's fiscal house in order that included reforming economic development spending. And so next week, um, there will be the next round of awards for the regional economic development councils. And here to discuss what those REDCs are and how they can be improved is Andrew Perry, CBC's research associate covering economic development in New York. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining us. Um, so as Maria said, next week is an important one for economic development in New York, regional economic development councils, annual awards, lots of big checks, um, uh-huh. often the governor, the lieutenant governor, very excited. Um, but for those who are not familiar, what, what exactly are those REDCs? Sure. So the REDCs really are the centerpiece of the state's economic development efforts. Um, now, every year, the state overall spends about four and a half billion dollars on economic development. And this has been one of the signature um, efforts of under the Cuomo administration. Economic development spending has increased uh, 57% over the course of his administration. They've doled out an average of $773 million uh, in total to the state's 10 regions since they were started in 2011. And what the councils actually are is they are real councils that are composed of members all appointed by the governor, and the members include um, local business leaders, leaders of higher education institutions, and labor leaders alongside um, elected officials from each region. When the REDCs were launched in 2011, they started or they developed um, strategic plans for their regions, which identified resources and needs in their regions and came up with pretty good plans um, for kickstarting economic growth or, in some cases, recovery uh, for their regions. And then in accordance with these plans, every year they identify um, the most promising targets and they recommend funding for sort of the best projects uh, to course to, to fund those strategies. Um, and then the awarding decisions are, of course, announced next week in December of every year. So the two things there are worth mentioning. One, yes. as Andrew said, the state spends $4.4 billion, but that is just the state of New York. Local governments tack on to that. 
And right. prior to this effort, there was just, you know, a hodgepodge of economic development programs. And a lot of this stuff was very kind of unorganized. And you had to be very entrepreneurial about how you could secure some of this funding. So part of the yes. beauty of this um, REDC was that all of that was harmonized through this consolidated application that allowed a business to make its application and argue on the merits um, and have that be assessed holistically by both the regional leaders and the state. And so that's what that process is. And, you know, the the positive aspects that were also a departure from past practice was that it was a bottom-up approach. I mean, it's no secret that upstate is struggling. You still have counties that are um, that have not recovered in terms of job losses from the recession and are actually still shedding population. And the REDCs were in a, an attempt to say, okay, look, the people who live here know best. And they can assess the strengths and the weaknesses and where the potential um, is for growth in this area and use that to develop a strategic plan to make investments in the right things. So, Andrew, mm-hmm. you've taken a look at this. Yeah. CBC has been um, focused on this for a long time. How do you assess both the design of the councils and what has actually happened since 2011? Right. That's a great question. Um so just on assessing them alone, and there are some shortcomings that we will get to, but we wanted we had to start somewhere. So we looked at um, cases of economic development that have been successful in other parts of the country um, for areas that are similar to those areas that are struggling in upstate New York. Um, so we looked at four case studies. One of them was actually um, Albany or the capital region here in New York, which has had sort of an economic recovery of all these post-industrial areas. We identified a couple of best practices that everyone seems to follow if they want to kickstart a post-industrial economy. And we found a couple of areas where the REDCs actually were well aligned uh, with these best practices. So to begin with, you have to engage in a long-term strategic plan that comes up with a credible uh, industry target. So industry clusters are just concentrations of of industries and sort of high value added economic activities, things like advanced manufacturing or um, or different sort of tech enabled industry sectors. Other successful regions, things places like Pittsburgh uh, and Albany have identified advanced manufacturing sectors that have worked for them and focused on those. So the REDCs do that. They, at the beginning, the strategic plans identified region, uh, sectors that they think could could be that, those sectors for uh, for their regions. Number two, successful uh, economic development tends to engage local leaders who we believe are best positioned to actually identify um, appropriate strategic targets and be committed to the economic turnaround in the long run. Um, so insofar as REDCs do that, which they do, and then have um, sort of sustained stable membership those are going to be the people who are really going to be able to follow through on a commitment and, and stick to their plan uh, for an economic turnaround. And then and then finally, they focus on workforce development. Now, every successful uh, regional economic development has a strong workforce development program. Um, and so the REDCs really do bring in their local educational institutions and they devote real resources to uh, to workforce development. So as you as you look ahead to this next round of REDC awards, um, are there things you know particular things that you're especially looking looking for, looking at? Um, do you want to highlight first yes. things that you uh, think need to be done to improve the REDCs? Yeah, um, I mean, of course, Maria mentioned this, and it's it's worth sort of reiterating that the parts of New York State that were struggling in the aftermath of 
the 2008 recession, which sort of is when these pro these were the RDCs were launched, and when the Cuomo administration really started committing a lot more resources to economic development. Those regions are still struggling. So those regions in upstate New York, outside of the capital region, are still experiencing population stagnation and and lower job growth than the rest of the state and the rest of the country on average. Um, so obviously the the RADCs haven't. I mean, you know, this this is the sort of stuff that takes a long time, but they haven't been unmitigated successes to say the least. So we identified three areas that we think are real shortcomings in the implementation of the RADCs, despite the elements of their design that we think are promising. Um, first, they often diverge from the strategies that they identified. So we found that of the economic development related projects, just 59% were tied to a strategy that the state or the region had um, identified as one of their targets. So as a result, each individual pro strategy might not be getting a lot of funding. Um, so our second is that we find that the, the the projects that are funded are pretty thinly spread across regions and then across strategies. Uh, so each in 2018, each region received just 28 uh, economic development related projects, and they averaged just 40 four hundred thousand dollars. And so if you have a lot of strategies and you have 28 projects that are you know relatively small, each individual strategy might not be getting the sort of sustained funding that would be necessary to actually catalyze some sort of sustainable economic transformation. So there's a lot of potentially worthy projects or maybe just a lot of projects and stakeholders and such and the money's getting dispersed Thin probably too thinly. Thinly across regions. So we also think that there should be more of a focus on, on geographic hubs, but then also right in, within each industry, there might be an industry that really has the potential to transform something like central New York. But if it's only getting a small handful of, of, you know, small to moderate sized projects, is that really going to kickstart it? And then finally, um, transparency and reporting we find to be inad inadequate. Um, and that's both at the sort of regional level, the regional performance um, indicators we found insufficient. And then there's too little reporting on, on sort of project level data and the performance of each individual project. Which will surprise all our listeners. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we, we commissioned this research for our conference last year, and now we're sort of wrapping it up in a bow and putting it out. I think, you know, it's very difficult to get this right, and there are a few places that can say that we have. I think the case studies were instructive because I think what was most, um, you know, what I took away from it was there was, you know, getting all the local stakeholders involved in, in developing a strategy, but then committing to, to, to that strategy over a long-term period with sustained investment. And pro what's problematic about the REDCs is the way in which the monies are being dispersed both, you know, across the regions, the sense that we have to keep everyone sort mm -hmm. of the same and level with how much money is awarded. But then even within regions, the political pressures to mm. distribute across when really you'd be um, – better able to get a return on that investment by leveraging the strengths and in the industries and the metro areas with universities and other tech um, kind of um, facilities that you have and using that to as the centerpiece of your strategy. So I think our report is really advocating for changing not so much the design in terms of having a, a regional process, um, but how you think about 
you know, developing strategies and then committing to sticking with them over the long term. And of course, what's problematic about that, as always, is that it creates losers, mm-hmm. right? Or rather, I should say, not as many winners in this <laughs> process. Um, so it's difficult, but I think it's the it's the kind of adjustment that's necessary if we're going to start to actually get some impact for these economic development dollars, which are just a huge amount of spending every year. So as these REDC awards are given out or as the aftermath of their award is being dissected, any other thoughts you want to leave us with, Andrew, in terms of things to either watch for or that should really be considered in the next year before the next round of awards are given? Right, right. It it may well be too uh, late for them to listen to us for this year. Probably. Um, But we did develop... Never too late. Don't sign the checks. (laughs) Right. but we did develop three recommendations to to mitigate each of those shortcomings we identified. Um, so to begin with, we think all funding should be tied to strategies that either the states or the regions had identified. Um, that's not the case now, but you really want to increase funding towards those those strategies and, and sort of get rid of the, the miscellaneous things that get funded through the RADCs. Um, second, reporting and evaluation should, of course, be strengthened. It's hard to evaluate whether a strategy works or whether a a grant program works if there isn't enough data to actually assess that uh, in sort of a rigorous and systematic way. And finally, we think regional assessment should carry more weight in in funding allocations. Right now, the the REDC assessment of each individual project only counts for 20% of the, the score that's used to actually award or allocate those funds. And we think since the local leaders um, are in the best position to, you know, develop strategies and maintain a commitment to that, their their uh, assessment should count for more. Perfect. Well, as you see those big checks awarded, imagine some big, um, you know, post-it notes right next to them or on them <laughs> or behind them with some of these recommendations. Uh, Andrew Perry, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. So for our last interview here, we are shifting uh, tact, shifting government levels, and now turning to a really important New York City issue, which is reform of the property tax. And so we are joined by Anna Champany, who is our CBC's Director of City Studies and also one of the uh, foremost property tax experts in the city. Um, Anna, you've been going around this, this fall and this winter to community groups talking to them about property tax. What have you been hearing at these meetings and what are people concerned about and why has this now become a prominent issue? Um, so thank you for having me. And yes, so I've um, I've visited most of the, the boroughs, not Staten Island, but most of the others. And I've had a chance to hear from homeowners in, uh, uh, in areas like Forest Hills, East Harlem, uh, Bay Ridge. And there are two concerns that keep being brought up over and over again. Uh, the first is that property tax bills are increasing very rapidly and homeowners are just not able to keep up. Uh, many say that their bills have doubled over the last 10 or 11 years um, and their incomes have not kept up and it's putting a lot of pressure on them. Um, and the second complaint has to do with inequities um, among properties so that homeowners who have similarly valued homes may face very different property tax bills based on what neighborhood they live in. Uh, for example, looking at sort of median um, tax burdens, if you had a $1 million home in Park Slope, your tax bill would be about $2,600. Um, conversely, a $1 million home in Bay Ridge would carry a property tax bill of about 7400 So these inequities and discrepancies between similarly valued homes are really generating a lot of uh, frustration and 
uh, among homeowners. And what is the root cause of that? Why, why does this, what, what are the features of the system that allow that disparity to occur? Um, there, are, there are a lot of um, caps and phase-ins and rules and, and aspects of the property tax that contribute to different kinds of inequities among similar properties, among different properties um, based on use. But it's the specific issue of different tax burdens for similarly um, valued homes across the city stems from assessment cap increases. So state law says that for a one, two, and three family home, the assessed value cannot increase more than 6% in one year or 20% over five years. And what happens is that in neighborhoods where market values are growing much more quickly, the uh, tax burden, so the taxes paid relative to the value of the home will be lower than in a neighborhood where the appreciation rate is slower. And so this has led to neighborhoods um, like Park Slope and even East Harlem, where there's a lot of appreciation and market values are growing, having lower tax burdens than neighborhoods, for example, in the northern Bronx or in Staten Island, where the markets are much uh, steadier. And so this has been a long, long time issue, concern. The inequities have been apparent for quite a while. And maybe especially even more so as just, you know, New York City's real estate boom has just gotten so uh, extreme. Um, but there's been really challenging sort of political atmosphere, political will around it. But we have at least a little bit of the promise of of a discussion really moving ahead, right? Right, right. So uh, many of these issues have been studied extensively by uh, policy groups and researchers in the city. Um, and there are not a lot of reports that sort of document what the causes are, how these have, these changes have played out or these um, issues have come about. And most recently, the, the mayor, uh, Mayor de Blasio and Speaker Johnson appointed a commission back in May 2018 uh, that was really tasked with making recommendations to increase the transparency, simplicity, and fairness of the property tax system. Uh, But with a big caveat, which is that they were not allowed to make recommendations that would reduce the revenue to the city. Um, And so they've been meeting and, you know, they had a number of hearings with the the public. They heard from uh, from experts um, and they're continuing to meet. There is a preliminary report that, you know, initially was expected in the summer, then the fall. Now we're hearing um, maybe coming soon. Um, And so there's an expectation that they're going to make some uh, pretty substantial recommendations. Two two quick things on that. One, it probably can't be overstated how much the city relies on property tax uh, revenue, right, to fund uh, services. And that's part of the reason that um, the mayor and the speaker, especially the mayor, you know, has made very clear that this commission should not be recommending things that would reduce revenue, which, uh, as you indicate, sort of ties its hands a little bit. but the other, but the other thing is that this report is is supposed to be due any day now. Um, we've been covering this quite a bit at Gotham Gazette, and even recently got you know a new comment from the chair of the of the commission, Mark Shaw, that it's it's coming soon, right. um, and the mayor has promised to put forward um, some effort in Albany where a lot of action has to has to take place um, for reform in the new right. year. So on on the point in, of the fiscal importance to the city, so the property tax is nearly half of all tax revenue and about a third of the city's overall revenue. So in essence, one out of every $3 the city spends comes from the property tax. And it's a very important um, 
fiscally, especially during recessions, because the property taxes tended to be particularly stable even when the economy turned south, and that's really helped the city stave off some of the worst uh, cuts that it might face otherwise. And as you indicated hearing from homeowners, though, there's been some really large jumps. Yes, yes. As, as the real estate market in the city has been very strong, the market values have increased and by extension the assessed values. And because the city has kept the tax rate flat for many years, uh, the result has been that uh, the bills themselves have gone up. As your market value goes up and your assessment goes up, your tax bill goes and just quickly, I'm so just... glad you raised this point <laughs> okay. because, the, you know, the budget, as we have discussed many times and New Yorkers know, has been growing um, very quickly, particularly in the last few years. And the speaker and the mayor have said, oh, but, we, you know, the budget spending's not growing. The revenue's growing. Like, we're getting all this money and we have to spend it. Well, in fact, yes, you cannot cut most taxes or tax rates as a local government. You could lobby Albany to make some adjustments if you needed, but the speaker and the mayor do have control over the property tax, and they could easily have adjusted the rates downward um, or, or give, made other changes, yes. Or give rebates. I mean, I know that's we not don't the best. Like that. I know, yeah, but I'm just saying best. in terms of gimmicky right. stuff, when you right. say we have to spend it all, you could that's do something. That's right. Like that. There's I mean, plenty that you can do to reduce I get kicked that. out here. Yes. <laughs> good, good save. Um, so they, they have complete control over this and have opted to – you know, let that go at the rate that it is and collect the extra revenues, which is why homeowners are not complaining that the bills are going up so much. But we're also getting at something really important, which I think um, our reporter at Gotham Gazette included in the most recent piece he wrote about this, which also included the fact that the state Senate has had some recent uh, public meetings and had a public um, a public meeting that was they've invited the public to come to talk about it. Then they also had a public meeting with experts and legislators recently. So that discussion is moving too, largely thanks to State Senator Brian Benjamin, who's been working on it. Um, but this, one of the issues at play here is that nobody actually thinks they're paying too low of property taxes, right? Like right. even the people who are getting a pretty good deal relative to others think their property taxes are too high. <laughs> so we're... <laughs> We're we're looking at some some fraught political territory, which is part of the reason this hasn't really been taken on before. Yeah, and that's you know that's and we've only just touched upon the issues within class one, which is home small homeowners. There are all kinds of interclass issues between homeowners and rental buildings, homeowners and business taxes, and what that system looks like and reforming that. But just to bring it back to something Anna said earlier, the caps that she mentioned in how you do the assessments and and other rates. Um, you know, they may they lead to these inequitable tax owners, uh, tax burdens between homeowners, but at the same time are instrumental to creating a very stable revenue source for the city. So untangling this ball is very, very difficult. And that is why I think people are, are waiting with people like us anyway, are waiting um, impatiently for the results of this commission um, because, you know, they'll have figured this out, hopefully. Right. I mean, and then to go back to the meetings that uh, Ben was mentioning, CBC's had the pleasure of attending a couple of the forums in the neighborhoods that Senator Benjamin and, and the other senators have hosted and participated in the roundtable. And that was actually a, a really good conversation uh, about different ideas about reform and what some of the sort of trade-offs would be if you um, implement one or another set of changes. So I think the conversation is definitely happening both in the city and in the state about what might be the way to try to fix the problem. 
But you're right. Everyone is concerned that their bill may go up. Um, they think their bill is already too high, and that's really made a sort of large-scale, broad reform really difficult politically. So let's get to CBC's proposed reforms here. Um, but even before that, the question of the fact that the city is an outlier sort of in terms of home ownership versus renters, but it can't be said enough that renters should really care about this as well. Do you want to try to briefly explain why renters should really care about property taxes? Sure. I think there are two main reasons that property taxes matter to the to renters. And the first is that even if you don't see a line on your uh, rent bill each month, you are in fact paying property taxes. Um, a portion of the rent that everyone pays uh, each month goes to the owner of the building who then is paying the property tax bill. Um, and it's not an insignificant amount. You know, economists haven't really agreed on what portion is passed through or what portion of the rent may be uh, reflective, but it's, you know, assumed easily to be in the 15 to 25 percent range. So a large part of the rent that everyone is paying each month um, is for property taxes. And it's also, um, as property taxes have increased for small homeowners, they've also increased for rental buildings, and that's going to put upward pressure on rents. Um, if you are in a New York City unregulated apartment, your landlord may be raising your rent in part in response to higher property taxes. Uh, but even among the regulated housing stock, the Rent Guidelines Board, when they meet every year and discuss um, how much of an increase to permit, do consider what are the cost drivers for owners of the buildings and property taxes are a large uh, factor. So this is definitely something that uh, contributes to the to the issues of affordability. Um, and there's another way that it issue um, impacts on affordability, and that has to do with the production of housing. Um, you know, economic theory would say if we built more housing, the cost of that housing would be lower. Uh, but right now, property taxes on rental housing are much higher than they are on one, two, three family homes and, and co-ops and condos. And that creates a disincentive for developers to build uh, rental housing. It's really financially not viable to do rental housing without a subsidy in the city. And that's constrained the supply of housing, which is going to put upward pressure on rents um, and contribute to the housing crisis. All right. So CBC's recommendations, we're waiting for this report from the city commission by most accounts that will then inform a legislative push by the city. There are certain things the city will need to take care of in City Hall, but also a push in Albany where a lot of the power remains, but CBC is looking for what reforms? Um, so CBC made uh, a pretty broad set of recommendations to the Advisory Commission about a year ago when we were invited to uh, testify. Um, and I'm going to recap just a few of them, not getting into all of the details. But one is that the, the city has a classified property tax system. And we've discussed there's class one, the one, two, three family homes. Uh, there's commercial property and it's in its own class. There needs to be some rationalization of this classification, specifically that co-ops and condos are in a class with rental buildings rather than being with the one, two, three family homes. And adjusting that either... You know, some folks have suggested doing just a residential class and others have said put the one, two and three family homes with co-ops and condos. Um, whatever you do, keeping co-ops and condos separate from the small homes just doesn't make sense. Um, another piece is that for those properties, for one, two, three family homes, co-ops and condos, the value determined by the finance department should really be based on sales. 
the transactions that are happening in the market are most reflective of what is the value of these properties. And right now, state law requires uh, the finance department to use a very convoluted process of imputing rental income on co-ops and condos uh, to determine value. And it creates uh, really low market values for co-ops and condos, which create issues both in terms of transparency of taxation and also on tax burdens and sort of whether or not the burden is equitable to other types of property. Um, All of these caps and phase-ins and class shares which create the inequities within classes and across classes should be eliminated. There should be a much simpler system. Um, And lastly, you know, there should be targeted tax relief to owners who, for whom property taxes exceed a certain portion of their income. And you really want to do this as what's, what's called a circuit breaker, where you say, if your property taxes are more than a certain percentage of your income, we're going to provide tax relief for some portion of that excess. And that is a much more targeted and efficient way to provide property tax relief than what the city has right now. I, I think fundamentally what we're looking for is a more rational, a more simple and a more transparent system with some consideration given to the folks who will not have the ability to pay under this new this new um, system. So we'll wait to see what happens. Okay. Anna, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening. This has been a great jam-packed episode, and we will talk with you soon. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye.